Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 1.2, The Fall of the Roman Republic. I hope that you enjoyed the first episode of the show, and I guess the fact that you're back for more is a good sign. I wanted to start off today by thanking everyone who's already reviewed the show on iTunes. It really makes the show look great when it has so many positive reviews, and it's amazing to get so many so soon. Remember, if you want to get the show as soon as it gets out, you should hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can get all the news you want about the show on the Facebook and Twitter pages. And, of course, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome to the rest of you. Welcome back. with tackling a topic so big, broad, and complicated as the fall of the Roman Republic is where to start. Big historical moments such as this can feel like a stone running down a hill towards someone's home at the bottom. Things often start moving slowly, and there's a chance that change can be arrested. If left unchecked, events build and build in intensity at a pace so inexorable that no one can stop it until, bam, everything has changed. That's quite a nice metaphor, but here is the problem. Where is the top of that hill? Take the question of why did World War I start? Well, most people would say that it has a lot to do with the interconnected alliance system of Europe that saw the great powers declare war like a set of falling dominoes. Okay, well, how did those alliances come about? Well, it has a lot to do with the rise of Germany and the result of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. But it also has a lot to do with the Congress of Vienna in 1815 and the post-Napoleonic settlement. So we're already back nearly 100 years. But surely then you have to look at Napoleon, no? And the French Revolution? And the decline of the Ancien Regime French monarchy? When does it stop? It's false peak after false peak. It's much the same with the story of how the Roman Republic fell. There are all sorts of dates that have been suggested. Did it start with the dictatorship of Julius Caesar? Or was it before with his rise to power and the crossing of the Rubicon? 
Do we go back a generation and look at the era of Marius and Sulla? Do we follow the example of my podcasting hero Mike Duncan and say it started with the end of the Third Punic War and the rise and fall of the Gracchi? God, do we even need to start it with Hannibal? If so, then why not just call it quits and start with the formation of the Republic itself? My point, and I admit that I'm making it rather long-windedly, is that it is impossible to exactly pinpoint the moment that the stones started rolling down the hill that led to the establishment of the Roman Empire. So we just have to pick a moment to meet it on the way down. But don't worry, this isn't going to be some long, dry political history. This is the other half. So as much as I can, I'm going to be telling the story of the Republic's fall through the eyes of some of the women at the centre of the action. And, in so doing, show you some of the great role models, positive and negative, that our empresses had. Having said all of that, though, let's start at the very beginning. The Roman Republic was born at the end of the 6th century BCE, when the citizens of Rome overthrew the monarchy. At that point, they were pretty much just a normal city-state, large urban centre supported by a limited rural hinterland. But over the next couple of centuries, they came to dominate pretty much the whole Italian peninsula. Rome was surrounded by rivals, but the most important were the various Gallic and Germanic tribal nations at the very north of Italy, and beyond, of course, in what is now modern Western Europe across the Alps. To the east, there was Greece, and to the south, there was Carthage, the great North African trading city empire. Rome was famed for its martial prowess. It was a society bred for war, and nowhere was this more clear than in its wars against these three foes. They could lose battles, sustaining titanic losses. Where others would sue for peace, they would continue. To beat Rome, you would have to slaughter every single Roman. There were always more men to fight. This allowed them to beat back every tribal invasion that came their way, make inroads into southern Gaul, modern France and Spain, destroy the Carthaginian Empire after the Third Punic War, and then wrest control of Greece away from the Macedonians. So Rome, by the mid-2nd century BCE, largely stood alone as a power in the West. Did this lead to peace and general prosperity? Of course not. But before we move on, we need to look at the political structure of the Roman Republic. This is important, because even though we are going to be watching the said Republic die, most of its institutions lived on into the imperial period. In his book De Re Publica, the great Roman orator Cicero outlined how he believed the Roman constitution worked. And while this is a rather idealistic version, it will suit for our purposes. Much like any modern state, it was a mixed constitution, with powers distributed amongst different bodies. First, there was the executive, the heads of the Roman state. These were the consuls, and there were always two, elected by the people of Rome to serve one year term and one year only, in theory at least. Becoming a consul was the peak of any man's career and what every politician in Rome aspired to be. They made judgments in legal cases, led Rome's armies to war, and had legislative powers as well. To win the consular election, you had to be extremely popular. Maybe you had won great victories in foreign wars and brought back treasure. Maybe you put on a ton of gladiatorial games or chariot races. Maybe you built great public buildings or infrastructure that benefited the city. Then there was the Senate. They were not just the main legislature, they were the political class. You weren't elected to the Senate. Most members were born into it thanks to their nobility, and links back to the great families of old. These were the wealthiest and most powerful men in the entire empire, and belonged to the patrician class. 
basically the upper class. The Senate was a powerful body. Consuls were almost always drawn from their number, and they assigned people to most government and administrative posts. Then, finally, there were the popular assemblies. These were supposed to act as a check on aristocratic power, as these members were elected by ordinary people, the plebs. Now, these assemblies are tremendously complicated, so I won't get into them too much, but suffice it to say that they had broad powers to legislate and hear legal cases pertaining to the lower class. Traditionally, they were very much subservient to the Senate, but they held a great amount of potential power if you were willing to take drastic action. Control these assemblies, and you controlled the mob. Okay, so that's the basic political structure, and it worked rather well for the first few centuries of the Republic, as they all worked to check and balance each other. But in the late second century, it all started to fall apart. Now, there weren't really such things as political parties in the Roman Republic. But from the mid-2nd century BCE onwards, you can argue that two kinda developed. The first was the Optimates. These were the Conservatives, the one who wanted to keep things broadly as they were. If you'll forgive the analogy, they are a right bunch of Slytherins. They didn't like that non-traditionally patrician men were starting to find great power in the Senate and win consular elections. These were the Novus Homos, or the New Men. The Optimates wanted to strict this membership to just them. They opposed popular poor reforms and wanted to keep Roman citizenship exclusive to the people of Rome and not give it to the people of Italy who clamoured for the rights and protections that it conferred. The other party, they were the populares or the populists. If you're wearing your rose-tinted spectacles, then you would say that they cared for the common man of Rome and the other Italian cities. They called for land distribution, free grain for the poor, and extension of citizenship to the Italian allies. This makes them sound like proto-socialists. Well, that they were not. And most of the time, this was very cynically done. The mob was an incredibly powerful force, and the person that could harness their energy and anger could rule Rome, Senate or no Senate. Now, class and status did not necessarily determine which party you belonged to. Cicero, for example, one of the great figures of the late Republic, was a novus homo, and yet was a key optimate. Julius Caesar, on the other hand, came from one of the great Roman families, and yet he was the greatest populare of them all. These two parties emerged at a time of skyrocketing economic inequality, as the richest men in Rome, flush with cash after all their success at war, started to buy up all of the land under Roman control. The poor, who only saw the hardship of these wars, had no choice but to sell up. Some stayed and worked essentially as indentured serfs, others flocked to Rome, where they festered and grumbled. The rich, however, saw their incomes massively increase and were able to throw that money around to buy political success from themselves, their families and their clients. What do I mean by clients? Well, Roman patronage worked along the lines of favour-owing and mutual back-scratching. A poor man would appeal to a richer man to help him out when he was in trouble. Maybe get him some political office or a promotion. In return, he pledged support the rich man if he ever asked for a favour, or the votes of him and his friends. This simple relationship extended in a great chain, going from the very bottom of society to the very top, as that richer man would in turn need a favour from an even richer man. In return, he not only promised his support, but that of his clients... Once you got to the very top of society, you found people controlling a vast web of clients, and this gave them huge political power. 
The problem with all of this money flowing about is that to gain an advantage in the political game, you now had to spend ludicrously large amounts of money. This was beyond the reach of all but the very richest, which meant that most politicians ran up huge debts. They could make that money back should they win. If they were to lose, they would be ruined. This meant that the price of failure was now super high, and so people would do anything, break any rule, use any trick, and smash through any traditional norm in order to win. Suffice it to say, that is not a great recipe for a successful political system. And that's before we get to the army. During the late Republic, the army went through a complete conversion from being a citizen militia to being, well, something else. The old Republican military in many ways resembled a medieval feudal army, but with the distinction that you had to be a citizen to serve. The very richest men were the generals, those that could afford a horse were in the cavalry, if you could afford armour then you were in the heavy infantry, and so on down. The very poorest didn't serve at all. Service in the army was seen as your patriotic duty to the Republic, and generally you served for a campaign season then went back to your farm. This worked well until soldiers started being posted abroad for years and years at a time. When you returned, your farm was ruined and your family would end up on the streets. This meant that the army started to only attract the very poorest members of society and they grew dependent on their generals who provided them with riches and glory rather than the Senate who clearly didn't give a toss. These generals would soon see that they could find a path to power outside the usual norms of the Republic one of whom would later say derisively to one campaigning senator, quote, cease quoting laws to us that have swords. All of this, massive economic inequality, two intractable political parties, recognition that breaking the constitution was acceptable to achieve your goals, and an army that followed its generals, not its politicians, combined together to create the chaos that will bring down the Roman Republic. Now, I have just gone through a ton of political ground laying there, but largely that is so hopefully I won't have to go back to it in the future. But I don't think that I've mentioned a single woman so far, so let's rectify that. The first Roman politicians to really try and harness the power of the populare were the Gracchi brothers. They were the only sons of a man who I won't bother with, as he died when his kids were young, and Cornelia Africana, the daughter of the great military hero, Scipio Africanus. Her sons were determined to advance the cause of the Roman poor, many of whom had formerly been soldiers in the army, and they were determined to use any trick and tear up any constitutional nicety to do it. First, Tiberius Gracchus led the charge, attempting to push through a controversial land redistribution law using the power of the mob to do so. But when he got himself re-elected and promised to go further, he was publicly lynched by his enemies. His brother Gaius followed in his footsteps, leading to his own lynching a few years later. Cornelius' reaction to all of this made her a symbol of Roman virtue, and therefore an interesting counterpoint to some of the views of the empresses that we will soon be examining. Sadly, the confines of this episode don't allow me to give a full biography of her, but she was a remarkable woman. Courageous, highly intelligent, and a good politician. She was involved in her son's political careers, giving them advice on how to proceed, but she won fame for her devotion not just to them, but to the state. Remember the three things that I said were the most highly praised in a Roman woman in the last episode? Family, chastity, and loyalty? She gave the Republic two great sons, 
She was of unimpeachable reputation when it came to her morality. And as for her loyalty? Here is part of a letter, one of a few that have survived, written by Cornelia to her younger son Gaius after the murder of her elder son Tiberius. Quote, You will say that it is a beautiful thing to take on vengeance on enemies. To no one does this seem either greater or more beautiful than it does to me. But only if it is possible to pursue these aims without harming our country. But seeing as that cannot be done, our enemies will not perish for a long time and for many reasons, and they will be as they are now rather than have our country be destroyed and perish. Cannot even that time span, as brief as it is, be of help in keeping you from opposing me and destroying our country? In the final analysis, what end will there be? When will our family stop behaving insanely? When will we cease insisting on troubles, both suffering and causing them? When will we begin to feel shame about disrupting and disturbing our country? Cornelia here is using her position as the family matriarch to try and advise her son to guide him away from the path of vengeance, as she perceived that, even should he succeed, it would lead to the ruin and destruction of Rome. Her letters would be quoted for years to come by Roman writers who saw the propheticality of her words. She was loyal to her son, but she was also loyal to Rome. That was the ideal of Roman virtue. The example of the Gracchi spurred numerous other reforming populari, some with good intentions, some who simply lusted for power, as well as emboldening the optimates. The Republic was placed in mortal peril, both from enormous Gallic invasions from the north and from a rebellion by many of Rome's Italian client states or allies who sought Roman citizenship, the very thing that the populares had been fighting for. This led to the emergence of powerful generals like the populare Gaius Marius, who served as consul seven times, an unheard of and constitution-breaking number, and his friend-turned-enemy Cornelius Sulla, who aligned with the optimates. They defeated their external enemies and then turned their armies, who are loyal to them, not the Republic, against each other, leading to a bloody and brutal civil war. Life in Rome was fast and violent in these days. No one was safe. The triumph of Sulla brought temporary peace, but the next generation of Romans would be the ones that brought the Republic to its death throes. And leading the charge was Gaius Julius Caesar. He can lay claim to being Rome's greatest ever general. He conquered what these days amount to the whole of modern France and Belgium, along with Germany west of the Rhine. He even invaded Britain, but didn't get very far. But he had rivals, such as Pompey, another great Roman general and leader, who had won fame in the East and in the war against Spartacus, and Crassus, one of the richest men in history. But instead of fighting it out, they allied together in an agreement called the First Triumvirate. Together, they had the military, financial and client base to dominate the Senate and popular assemblies. And how was the agreement sealed? Well, in the classic way, of course. A marriage. Caesar had only one legitimate daughter, Julia, and she was married to Pompey. She was 30 years younger than her new husband, being 17 when they tied the knot. But the union was an uncharacteristically happy one. She too is seen by the Roman sources as being a paragon of virtue. Hers is one of marital and domestic virtue, a little different to that of Cornelia Africana's. 
She was devoted to her husband, and he to her. This was to a fault. He is seen to have neglected his duties and spent too much time with her. But she doesn't seem to have carried the blame for it, possibly thanks to the huge popularity of her father. But it is really in death that she won her greatest fame. Here it is described by the Roman historian Plutarch. Quote, When it happened that, during the elections for the Adal ships, a fight broke out and numbers of people were killed near the place where Pompey was standing. As he was covered with their blood, he changed his clothes. His servants ran back to his house with the blood-stained garments, making a great noise, and his young wife, who was pregnant at the time, fainted at the sight of a toga all covered with blood, and was only brought back to life again with great difficulty. As it was, the great shock to her feelings caused a miscarriage. Later, however, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, but she died in the process of giving birth, and the child only survived her for a few days. Pompey made preparations to have her buried at his country estate near Alba, but the people insisted on taking the body down to the field of Mars to be buried there. They did this rather out of pity for the young woman than as a mark of favour to Pompey. Julia's death, performing her duty as a woman, i.e. providing a son, and her unswerving loyalty to her husband, along with her family name, won her fame and praise. But also, she became a virtuous symbol for what her death caused. Without this marriage tie, Pompey was no longer bound to Caesar. Julia's death, along with Crassus dying in battle in the east, helped rupture the triumvirate. Pompey took the side of the Optimates and turned the Senate against Caesar. Civil war again ensued, but Caesar's armies were unstoppable and steamroller Pompey, who was eventually murdered while on the run. This led to the establishment of the dictatorship of Julius Caesar, which lasted for five years. His rule also brought to the fore two men who would bring about the final demise of the Republic, and who had the interesting knack of marrying some pretty extraordinary women. The first was Caesar's master of the horse, who had served in his army through all his great campaigns, Marcus Antonius, a man known now to the English-speaking world as Mark Antony. The second, and most important to our story going forward, was a younger man, Caesar's great-nephew, Gaius Octavius, known to us now as Octavian. Now, Octavian is, of course, super important to our story, so I'm going to give him a brief introduction here. He was born in 63 BCE in Rome to a family on the rise, but certainly not one of the august senatorial clans. His father died when he was four, and so despite his mother still living, he mostly spent his childhood in the household of his maternal grandmother, Julia, the sister of Julius Caesar. This connection to the Julii continued to work well for Octavian's family, as both his mother and sister, Octavia Minor, married consuls, while Caesar himself started to take a real interest in his great-nephew. Like most young men of potential, once he came of age, he wished to make a name for himself in the army, specifically in the army of Caesar fighting in Africa. But his mother totally embarrassed him by refusing to let him go. When he appealed a second time, she relented, but he was too ill to travel. When he recovered, he did set out to join his great-uncle, but was shipwrecked in enemy territory and forced to travel behind enemy lines to reach the Roman camp. Impressed by this, it is said that it was then that Caesar made the fateful change to his will that would alter the course of history, naming Octavian as his son and heir. 
when Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March in 44 BCE. Octavian and Antony united to fight the armies of their mentors' assassins, and then, after quite a bit of tension, formed their own triumvirate, with a man called Marcus Lepidus. They then went about a pretty nasty session of political repression and murder that I won't get into in just now. Let's just say that it really sucked to be a Roman in the 1st century BCE. They managed to win the civil war, but everyone recognised that with the common enemy gone, it was likely that their two armies could very easily just end up being turned on each other. Even the empire of the Roman Republic was not big enough for the two of them, it seemed. But like the first triumvirate, there was one thing keeping the agreement together. A marriage alliance. Antony's wife, Fulvia, had a daughter from a previous marriage named Claudia, and it was she that married Octavian. This marriage, though, did not last long, and Octavian managed to wriggle his way out due to her still being a child, and therefore the marriage unconsummated. He instead married someone else, outside of Antony's family, whose name I won't trouble you with. Fulvia, though, now she is very interesting, and so I'd like to talk a lot more about her, because she is very different from the virtuous woman that I have so far introduced you to, and the character assassination that she has been subjected to in the sources is a perfect appetizer for what we will later see with some empresses of Rome. She was born into a wealthy family who had fallen from favour a little. Her first marriage was to a man whom those of you who know your late Republican history will know well, Publius Clodius Pulcher. Together, they had two children. One of them, Claudia, was the one who married Octavian to temporarily seal the second triumvirate. Now, Clodius was a fascinating man who time does not allow me to get into. Let me just describe him as a philandering noble gang leader who commanded a series of street thugs who helped support the triumvirates. He also once tried to infiltrate a women's only religious ceremony while dressed as a woman in order to seduce the hostess, which caused a huge scandal and made him and Fulvia lifetime enemies of Cicero. In the end, though, a feud with Milo, a rival gang leader, led to his murder in 52 BCE. Fulvia, whose marriage to Clodius was apparently fairly close, publicly grieved the loss of her husband and led his body through the streets of Rome and spoke at Milo's trial, which led to his execution. She next married someone unimportant who died while serving with Caesar in Africa, leading to her third and final marriage to Mark Antony. Fulvia was a great shield for Antony. She still held the loyalty of her husband's gangs, which was a great aid in helping him control the streets. She helped defend him also from the attacks from Cicero, who accused them of having had an adulterous affair before they were married. She gave as good as she got from him, and was instrumental in preventing Cicero from declaring Antony an enemy of the state while he was out east. Now this is really interesting, as this is a woman doing a whole lot more in the world of politics than the others we have discussed. She may be acting in defence of her husband, but she is also defending her own position and wealth, and of course her enemies believe that she was doing so at the expense of the Republic, if such a thing even existed anymore. The sources portray her as a fanatic, a woman of no scruples and a limitless capacity for retribution. A famous example of this comes from Cassius Dio, a historian writing many years later. Quote, Fulvia also caused the death of many, both to satisfy her enmity and to gain their wealth, in some cases men with whom her husband was not even acquainted. When, however, the head of Cicero also was brought to them one day, 
he had been overtaken and slain in flight, Antony uttered many bitter reproaches against it, and then ordered it to be exposed on the rostrum more prominently than the rest, in order that it might be seen in the very place where Cicero had so often been heard declaiming against them. And Fulvia took the head into her hands before it was removed, and after abusing it spitefully and spitting upon it, set it on her knees, opened the mouth, and pulled out the tongue, which she pierced with the pins that she used for her hair, at the same time uttering many brutal jests. Gross. And whilst this is probably the most graphic of the stories of her bloodlust, it is far from the only one. Many of them, though, either came from the pen of her great enemy Cicero, or were from works inspired by him, and so they really do have to come with a grain of salt. But from these horrific descriptions, we can glean something remarkable. While Antony was outside of Rome, she essentially ran the city along with his brother Lucius. One source states that, quote, She managed affairs herself so that neither the Senate nor the people transacted any business contrary to her pleasure. Though it was Lucius that did the fighting, Fulvia was the real power in the city, and can lay claim to being, at this moment in time, the most powerful woman in the history of the Roman Republic. Now, officially, Antony and Octavian were still on the same side, but it was in reality more of a cold war that was brewing, and it was heating up fast. One of Octavian's key policies was land redistribution to his legions, but Fulvia blocked it, wanting to wait until Antony returned and they could share in the glory. This and other tensions exploded into yet another civil war. Now, in reality, this war was inevitable, but the sources have their own particular view of why it happened. While in the East, Antony had begun his much-famed affair with the Egyptian pharaoh Cleopatra, and the sources claim that it was jealousy of this that was the cause of the war. Appian, another Roman historian writing long after the fact, describes Fulvia as being tricked by one of her advisers, a man called Manius, into inciting Lucius to war. Quote, Antony's soldiers, and Octavian also, blamed him for working against Antony's interests, and Fulvia blamed Lucius for stirring up war at an inopportune time, until Manius maliciously changed her mind by telling her that as long as Italy remained at peace, Antony would stay with Cleopatra. But if war should break out, he should come back speedily. Then Fulvia, moved by a woman's jealousy, incited Lucius to discord. Ah, the time-old slander against women by making her seem like a desperate, jealous bitch. Classic. Another person to use this to blame Fulvia was Octavian himself, who wrote a poem that I will not quote because it is about 50% F-words, and I would like to be able to mark this episode as clean. I'll put it in the show notes, but he essentially asked her either to fight him like a man or f*** him like a woman. Anyways... Lucius gathered an army, while Fulvia essentially commanded the whole war effort. And again, we can see how extraordinary this is by the reaction of these shocked and scandalised sources. Cassius Dio shrieks out, quote, Fulvia occupied Prineste, and with senators and equites for her associates, was one to conduct all her deliberations with their help, even sending orders to whatever points required it. And why should anyone be surprised at this? when she would gird herself with a sword, give out the watchword to the soldiers, and in many instances, harangue them. Here, Dio is casting Fulvia as behaving mannishly, one of the great insults he could throw at a woman at the time. 
She soon caught up with Lucius at Perusia, on Perusia, where they waited for the arrival of Antony. Octavian's army besieged the city, though, and starved them out before Antony could arrive. Again, the propaganda fueling Octavian's legions was squarely aimed at Fulvia. Arrowheads had been found, with slogans like, I'm aiming for Fulvia's c***. She was spared after the city's surrender, but was forced into exile and died a year later. The historical depiction of Fulvia is a classic example of how Roman women who defy gender expectations and enter traditionally masculine spaces were treated by the sources, particularly those who end up being on the wrong side of history. She was portrayed as both being unwomanly and mannish, but also having all of the weaknesses of a woman. She was attacked using the language of sex and rape. This also meant that the men in her life were attacked for being submissive and womanlike, for allowing her to dominate them. Plutarch, for example, wrote that she, quote, cared nothing for spinning or housework and was not interested in having power over her husband, who was just a private citizen, but wants to rule a ruler and command a commander. To him, this was a great insult. To us, this makes her someone worthy, perhaps, of celebration. The fall of Perusia led to a brief peace between Antony and Octavian, and that too was sealed by a marriage, this time between Antony and Octavian's sister Octavia Minor. But that would not last long either. The Roman Republic was dead, and the two great warlords left standing would have to battle it out to see who would rule it. But there is one man who I have failed to mention in this entire story, mainly because he wasn't all that important in the great events that I have described. He was a supporter of first Julius Caesar and then Mark Antony. He, his wife and their son, were forced out of Rome and fled to Fulvia and Lucius' army at Perusia in 40 BCE before they were again put to flight after the city's fall. They first made for Sicily, then Greece, but their pursuers were never far behind. Finally, they were allowed to return to Rome three years later. His name was Tiberius Claudius Nero. His son was also named Tiberius. His wife, Livia Drusilla. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.